Kohelik is Iana Kamaleshkel. Iana is Iana Ushla. Is Minla Marangetal Shaks, my weakest equality of our Sakan Firkin Polsha, a Darish of Rome Hins, Rabbatan Kaylee's yet son, a toy cash the lung. Dear friends, I'm on first of all chair and former chair and distinguished guests and ambassadors. I should say at this stage, perhaps all protocols observed, uh, but I think want to say what a great pleasure it is to be here. I want to thank you for the warm welcome that you've given to Sabina and I and to those who are traveling with me. May I, before I do anything else, uh, say how deeply moved I was by what was the most impressive welcome to country that I've had since I arrived in Australia. I want to say to the two young people, uh, first of all, I will say in English first that I join with you in the tribute to the first occupants of Australia in their 65,000-year-old culture. How appropriate it is to say this in a museum and also to say that that culture is not dead as you speak it and speak about it. And I acknowledge and pay tribute to your elders past and present and their descendants. And I wish you both personally uh, the greatest achievement as you succeed in a complex world while retaining and giving evidence to your wonderful indigenous culture. Now speak in Irish, our language is 5,000 years old. May I begin, as I have been acknowledging the first occupants of this land, but may I go on to say what a great pleasure it is to be in the company of so many great friends of Ireland, celebrating as they are the 30th anniversary of the Ireland Funds Australia. I want to thank the Chair of the Funds in Australia, Yvonne Labar, Kieran McLaughlin, Chief Executive Officer of the Ireland Funds, and Theresa Keating, Executive Director, for their very kind invitation to be your special guest this evening. I also congratulate you on your achievements during these three decades. The Ireland Funds Australia, as you have heard accurately, is one of the most active and fastest growing chapters of the Ireland Funds worldwide. And really its achievements is there in the more than half a billion uh, dollars that it has raised for 3,000 not-for-profit initiatives across the island of Ireland and among Irish communities overseas. I have to say as I was preparing my remarks, I was particularly interested in fact that what I think holds together for the best of the Ireland Fund initiatives in different countries is the value system that drives them. That value system has, has in fact led uh, the Australia chapter of the Ireland Fund to make a decision that one should express the same values at home as in Ireland. And therefore I so congratulate you on what you are doing in relation to the indigenous community. What is very impressive is that the spirit of community that is revealed, that lies at the hearts of all of your achievements, looking beyond the horizons of our normal everyday lives and envisaging the real impact in terms of solidarity and transformation. 
I'm encouraged to remember myself. I was 21 years, as you introduced me. I was 21 years when I went to university, having worked in the electricity supply board and in a factory and so on. And I remember getting the 200 pounds loan from a friend of mine. I'm pre-grant in Ireland and going to university in Ireland and later in, in, in the United States and later in Manchester and so on. But it was transformative in my own life. And my wish for the two young people who welcomed us this evening, welcomed us recalling that culture that I have mentioned, is that it will be transformative in their lives because their contribution will be incredibly important. Since I came uh, to Australia just uh, uh, less than two weeks ago, and having the privilege of speaking in universities, in the University of Western Australia, in Melbourne, and yesterday at the University of New South Wales, I think that education is one of the great contributions towards transformation, not just in a personal sense, but it is those who have come through the process of personal transformation who can realize its potential in others. Giving the opportunity for access to education is such an incredibly important thing to do. It's also a gesture of solidarity. Our lives come and our lives go. And we are, after all, in a world that is, I think, insufficiently and accurately described by being described as being globalized, as if it was some kind of dependent variable. It is an interconnected set of peoples, and more and more our world is going to be one where people will be moving all over the planet. The more they know of each other's cultures, the more they understand each other, the better that movement will be. I often think, indeed, as I have been speaking in my language, and there are not less than 300 languages in this region are writ alone in, 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 of an ancient kind. Someone once said that when a language is lost, a library is lost. And it's the same, really, for the importance of the cultural space that we're in. I was very moved to be invited to be, I was Minister for Culture in Ireland between 1993 and 1997. And I think it's just so important I pay tribute to those who are investing in cultural institutions. I think uh, for uh, your wonderful, the, of the Ireland Fund, and what began as an exercise in practical philanthropy has become a powerful uh, force, and it has made Ireland a better place. I recognize that. I also know the effect of the projects, the practical projects, that are taking place on both sides of a border that no one wants to return. And it's very helpful to know that that is the view that is across the board in both the United Kingdom and in Ireland. Achieving that, I think, at the present time, you would expect me as President of Ireland to say, we are, of course, concerned about the circumstances in which we find ourselves as a consequence of the decision that was taken, as they are entitled to do, by citizens of the United Kingdom. We really have four issues. We have an issue, really. No one wants the border to return, but how do we make sure of this? You must remember that Ireland and Great Britain had, in fact, a common travel area long before either of us joined the European Union. Secondly, we are, of course, affected by trade. While 45% of our trade is with Europe, quite diversified, 
15% for North America, 16% for the United Kingdom, but buried within that 16% of the United Kingdom is agribusiness, which is job rich. About 46% of a regionalized productivity in that sector in Ireland is in fact affected. We will get past these difficulties. There are other difficulties, including one where some progress has been made, which is the position of the United Kingdom citizens in the European Union and European Union citizens in the United Kingdom. It's probably the only progress to report from stage one. You also have other issues that we have in relation, I think, uh, uh, as well. Uh, there are ones uh, that are in relation, as I've said, to just simply the movement between our, between our two people. It's interesting to bear in mind some point that doesn't usually surface, is that in relation to capital investment, the United Kingdom is present in Ireland to the same degree as Ireland is present in the United Kingdom. We have very heavy investments there. And then I think as well the other thing in relation, while we're exposed in relation to some parts of agricultural produce, equally unfinished agricultural produce, about two billion comes back from the United Kingdom. So. Everybody is affected by this decision. Everybody will want, in fact, to have a sensible solution. I think, uh, that having been said, you are all friends of Ireland in the most practical sense. And you will be very pleased to know that uh, the present indicators in Ireland, debt to GDP is about 106%, um, unemployment is about 6.2, uh, trade surpluses are healthy, and we're now actually projecting a slow, steady rate of growth. I think sometimes when I, you go abroad as president, people ask you, how is Ireland now, as if we have been through a traumatic experience. We have been through what I like to call for politeness, a contraction, uh, but it isn't really a contraction at all. It was actually a speculation that went wrong. It was a banking issue driven by a property bubble. But the good news is, and I've been accompanied here accompanied by the, in my visit to Australia, by the Thornish, the minister, the minister, minister for Francis Fitzgerald, but by also by the agencies, the Enterprise Ireland, and particularly the Industrial Development Authority and Tourism Ireland. But during the period of 2007-12, that many of you will be familiar with, when we had these difficulties I described, our exports expanded by 40%. And during that period, just less than 100, serious negotiations were conducted by the Industrial Development Authority for location in Ireland. And thus you have in Ireland representatives of nearly all the major ICT companies, very significant players in biopharma, biotechnology, and all of this area. Why? Well, where we have looked at it, uh, the evidence goes like this. Yes, it is affected to some extent by the corporation tax of 12%, but more particularly, what comes out of the research is that it is the high education, the education, we're back to education again, is that the largest number of people between 18 and 25 in the European Union is in Ireland that in fact finish with a graduate degree. And the largest proportion who graduate in that age cohort, who go on to postgraduate work, is in fact in Ireland. So therefore, there's another way of looking at this whenever we're discussing corporation tax is that, of course, we're intellectually subsidizing economies, not just all over Europe. And that's thus why every now and again, when I'm speaking abroad, I suggest to people, really, circular migration is the tax coming home. Uh, I, I think as well is, is something that is very, very important in relation to, in relation to all of this. 
It isn't economy is the matter. Sometimes say, how did all of this happen? Well, maybe one of the economic messages that has been coming through my speeches since I came in in the discussions which I had, we really owe where we are today to hard work. Yes, a great price was paid by the Irish people. I would say a contraction in income and spending power of between, depending on how you calculate it, 23 and 26 percent. That's the price of the fiscal stabilization. But really, it's entirely due to exports. And it's very, very much due to the high level of competence and excellence of what you might call innovative, uh, uh, enterprising government state agencies that I have been mentioning. All of this is only to say, therefore, when you have discussed, because people do raise it, what is the state of the Irish economy? The economy is healthy, and it's healthy for those reasons much less, for the reasons I've been stating, very, very much more than the suggestions that might have come from our European partners. <coughs> well, not in fairness to our European partners, come from a rather technical people from, if you like, the Troika. I'm being very blunt. We have benefited from Europe. Women have the gender equality, environmental awareness, so many different ways, not just in economic terms. Diverse capacity to, diverse, to have diverse markets and products, yes. And in as I have been describing the Irish economy, we, are the progress we can at the moment say that where we have looked at it is that there's a very, very good outlook in at least 11 of the 14 sectors of the economy. But Europe, we are staying in Europe. And I have been emphasizing that it will be very important for us as we broaden our markets, using Australia as a launching pack to an increased and deeper interest in the Asian market, and equally welcoming Australia, as us as a, an English-speaking uh, people, welcoming Australia's interest in the European Union. That there's been so much we can do together. But it really, as one speaks about economics, isn't it all about people? Our economic economies, in the end, in the end not merely instrumental to the life of people. And therefore, the philanthropy that you sponsor is good for Ireland, good for Australia, and good for the world. I think as well, I'm so pleased as well, because I have read about it, of the generosity of, of people, including some no longer with us, including Lady Mary Fairfax, and I'm delighted that her family is represented here. For example, in giving a million dollars in 2004 to the Sir Warwick Fairfax Trust for Integrated Education in Northern Ireland, with the goal of being to educate children Catholic and Protestant in an integrated environment. This was such a significant contribution. Really, a couple of things immediately spring to mind. In the six and a half years that I've been president, but long before that, it was very, very clear that if you leave people unemployed if you leave people without hope. You leave them available to others who can ask them to recall perhaps things that are entirely abstract and dangerous, old and bitter antagonism. I've often warned and said that, look, you've heard me now speak about Brexit. We have in it something much more important beyond Brexit is the future of Europe itself and the necessity of restoring a contact with the European street so that unemployed and disaffected people and others are not left as prey to fundamentalisms and the same kind of stuff as in fact it was so destructive in Northern Ireland. But thus, the idea that somebody would fund and make, us make 
such an important contribution to integrated education in Northern Ireland, where people could sit down together and discuss the future. I've quoted philosopher, the one philosopher perhaps more than others in my speeches so far in Australia, and that is Hannah Arendt, where I've said, really, undoing a wrong involves a kind of contract, making sure that a wrong remembered doesn't rob you of your capacity in the present and even more important, your opportunities for the future. That is what integrated education does. It opens the future. We would say in Irish, it releases all the capacities for the future, as well as enabling a peaceful present. So may I pay tribute to, to Lady Fairfax and contribute to the generous hospitality that you have of, at her, her, the, her gardens are going to continue to be available. I wish you all every, every, every success in these practical acts of memory uh, for her work. But isn't it very interesting as well, and this is what I meant in the earlier part of my remarks, when I said that the same value system as informs your interest in Northern Ireland, your interest in peace in Ireland, your interest in reconciliation, your interest in a peaceful island, a creative, peaceful, imaginative people living together, is so important that the same values are brought to bear on the source of all of this, Australia. And thus, the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation is so important. And you have seen it. I, it, was, it, it would be impertinent of me to speak about it because it is so obvious. But that funding for Indigenous scholarships at four leading Australian schools, that will contribute not just to the people involved. It will contribute to how Australia will be remembered for having an attitude towards solidarity and capacity and transformation. I think as well, what it is addressing is very significant. All through everything I have said at the universities, I've been saying one thing you can't do if you want to live is to affect some kind of amnesia about the past. That's why I quoted Arendt. You have to transact the past. And really, when you have a situation uh, of where indigenous students completing schooling up to the age of 12, which is so basic, is only at 59.4% compared with 84.8% of non-indigenous students. It is a problem you cannot ignore. And then again, let's look at the good news, which is that those who have benefited in 2014, the Ind Australian Indigenous Education Foundation scholarship students achieved a 92% retention and year 12 completion rate. These results are powerful contributions, not just to those involved in Australia, but to humanity. That was doubling the national average and was the highest year recorded by any federally funded program in Australia. I congratulate you on that. What a great achievement. And then as it goes on in relation to the cooperation that we can have, in having such projects in Ireland and in Australia that will enable the transformation of lives and the building of a secure society to the future. Maybe the big debate we're about to have in Europe is a debate about social cohesion. It's a debate that is global. For that is, we could find ourselves 
living very partial lives, intellectually and practically, if we began adjusting our populations to descriptions of what was economic. The issue is how, in fact, can people live together peacefully with responsibility in a more sustainable way, recognizing each other's cultures. I have argued in Melbourne and elsewhere, we may have, in fact, to ask how do we teach these subjects? For example, relocating uh, economics within a system of culture and moral and ethical concern, which was, in fact, I suggested when the three great, the great, one of the four great founders of Melbourne University, William Hearn, had this, this, uh, had this view. He had taught Greek at Queen's College Galway before coming as professor of moral economy and logic uh, to Melbourne. So we need to think about, how, about what we do and why we do it. And therefore, I think as well, there is an enormous, it is enormously valuable that we're going to see the extension that, that I'm pleased to, that you're supporting the Science Gallery in Melbourne this year. The University of Melbourne has secured the rights to Australia's only node in the highly successful Science Gallery International Network founded at Trinity College in Dublin. It might surprise you to know that now young girls outnumber young boys in taking up science as a subject. And this will be of immensely great value to you uh, in the future. The Ireland Funds have partnered with Science Gallery Mel Melbourne for, for a recent exhibition. And it will be public-facing, dynamic and engaging to inspire young adults into the STEM workforce. And this is how all of life comes together. One of the big issues in relation to science and STEM is in relation to the retention of the genius of women through the entire career as they in fact actually can continue in their contribution to science, a debate we're having in Ireland. So science gallery programs will spark curiosity, it will spark debates and debate, and it will spark minds. My personal view in relation to this is that faced with the future, that one of the, the greatest contributions that humanity could make would be a contribution to science without borders. I remain totally convinced that in relation to the paradigm shift that we need, not only international trade and international economics, but also in relation to science and technology, that we, we need to be able to leap over borders to where the great population expansions are taking place on the planet. How many of us, for example, have seriously considered what, in fact, are both the promise and the consequence of 24% of the people of the planet living on the continent of Africa by 2050 will be, and that 40% of the people under two youngsters under 21 will be on that continent. And we ask ourselves the question, how then will we face this? Can our existing models deal with all of these issues? Can we, in fact, make sure that it releases a great promise for a continent? Or are we going to wait and decide to construe it as a set of problems? What you're doing in relation to releasing capacity in young people in terms of their creativity and genius is incredibly important. Of course, as I finish, I want to say how important it is that you have taken such a great interest in modern Irish studies. I think that is very important. Isn't it an interesting thing about Ireland that a people who really had an engagement, when my, my, grand, my grand uncle, when he came with his sister, Mary Ann. Mary Ann is marrying two years later and to her husband, John Cleary. And they are signing their marriage certificate with an X. 
and they were Irish speakers and so forth. When I think back about all of this in a way, Ireland has a long complex history. Our relationship with Australia involves convicts, it involves those who were involuntary transferred here, it involves the 4,114 girls who were sent from the, work, from the workhouses and who landed in Sydney. It involves all of that. It involves the settlers, the people who came after the landers of 1862. It takes those who came here in the 1980s as young graduates, those who came in 2007 after the contraction construction industry. And then, of course, you have, that's, if you like, the people who are moving. But then there is the literature, there is the achievement of a people who had a different language, having the lang English language made necessary for them for immigration and so on. And then they go on to win four Nobel Prizes in, the, in, in English literature. And the same thing has happened. I sometimes think we neglect when we speak about the contribution of Irish scientists to science and to technology. So I thank you for your support for the period 2010-15 of the Ireland Fund's Australia Chair of Modern Irish Studies. And I also thank you as well for all of you for the, that funding which you made available to at University of New South Wales. And I think as well as I finish in saying this, philanthropy, a value system that can leap across borders in the same way as I've been speaking of the need for science and technology to leap across borders. Is that not reflected in the contribution of the late Jim Steins? I was very moved as I went past Melbourne Cricket to see his statue. And I was very, very privileged as president to be able to award to his, uh, his widow, Sam, uh, an award, a presidential award, recognizing his contribution not just to sport, but for all of his other work that enabled, which helped 30,000 young people every year to cope with the struggles of modern life. And what greater contribution could you make than your decision to uh, fund equivalent activities in Ireland at the present time? I do want to say, there are, I have only been referring to some aspects. I think you know it was Jim Stein's legacy that inspired Tony Griffin to found SOAR. And all of those different activities of yours are there not as finished entities, but as exemplars of how, in fact, one can fund and use and release so much good, not just goodwill, but release, release such capacity. I do pay tribute, indeed, to Yvonne Labar and to former chairs, John O'Neill, Alan Joyce, Charles Kern, and all of your other guests. And I thank every one of you for the generous support you have been giving to something that is very important. You've been recognised as well as something that, as a body, that not only just has all these good aspects that I've been describing, but has been doing so with efficiency. I think the efficiency of the mind is combined by the greatest instincts of the heart. And may I wish you all every success again. Is Gwim Gafrak as Banak Tarik, Ambuikas Livasatan Midato Chintagi, Er San Winter Neherin, Agasat Kohoideher, Kosmwinter Neherin, Agas Kosmwinter Nostroi. I so pay tribute to you for all you have done. As I said, Kosmwinter, the name we have, if you like, for those who are struggling underneath in Irish, in the Irish language, and those who are in fact struggling in Australia, and the capacity that you are releasing. And as President of Ireland, I want to thank you for inviting me to be your guest of honour this evening. Bear everybody.